thank you all for being here. Um, this, it's such a joy to be in the presence of, um, of the Lord and of the presence of the body of Christ this morning. A few announcements for you. Uh, coming up soon, um, actually next Sunday, is what we are calling our back-to-school splash. It used to be a back-to-school bash, and now we're making it a back-to-school splash because it will be wetter than previous years. Um, but uh, we would really encourage you to be a part of that, whether you have uh, kids in elementary school or kids preschoolers or youth, um, any age is welcome to come and participate in it. Or if you do not have kids in your home, uh, we would love for your help that evening. We have some volunteer positions that we still need to fill, and uh, we need people to do things like cook, up, cook food for the night. We need people to set up and tear down stuff, that sort of thing. So if you have any interest in helping, um, let AJ or Rika or one of the staff know. Um, but if you just want to come and be a part, we'd love for you to come and be a part. We'll, pro we'll provide dinner. We'll have a lot of fun. And that is next Sunday evening. Um, also want to let you know, just as we're coming into, this is the last Sunday in July, and y'all, August comes quick and gets busy, and school's going to start back soon, and our calendar is filling up a lot more. And so we have the Back to School Splash um, next week. We have Awana starting soon. We have our congregational meeting on August the 15th. That will be ice cream and ministry reports in the gym, and we have um, then our missions conference the last weekend in August. So please make note of all of those as you receive the e-update. If you are not receiving the e-update, then um, fill out the card if you've got one of those half-page bulletins. Um, there's a link on there to submit your information to get the regular email updates from the church. Um, and so you have the schedule of all the things that are coming. August is going to be particularly busy. Um, there will be more stuff coming with Life Group soon as we're going to start to relaunch some of our Life Groups as um, some kind of went on life support in the midst of COVID. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be... Uh, we reworking some of that stuff. And so um, I'd really encourage you, if you're not a part of a life group currently, whether you were um, a while ago and haven't recently, or you've never been a part of a life group, if you're visiting, you're still new to this church, um, really prayerfully consider, we're going to give you more and more information over the next couple of weeks about what that looks like. And it's going to be, um, there, there's going to be more opportunities to connect in community through those life groups um, coming up soon. So please just uh, be prayerfully considering, you know, what, what morning, what night, what, what time could your family give towards that ministry? Um, then also, I told you the last couple of weeks about a special offering that we are doing for one of our missionary families. We have a young man, 16 years old. His name is Emmanuel, and he is the son of one of our Romanian uh, pastors that we sponsor. We sponsor, if you don't know, we sponsor two churches in Romania through longstanding relationships. And uh, one of them, Emmy, is sending his son to the U.S. to study for a year for his high school junior year. He will be living in Dalton, attending Christian Heritage. But we want to help um, with some of those travel costs and just the costs that will come, both from tuition, but especially travel and meals and things like that as they come here. They're going to be, um, Emmanuel is going to be splitting time with both my family and Tom and Sally Perry here in Dalton. And so um, if you want to be a part of supporting that ministry, um, there's a fund online you can give to, or you can give in the memo line to uh, just put international student. You don't have to know his name. His name's Emmanuel. But just put international student in the memo line. Um, just as a special offering we're going to be doing for these few weeks. There is a, um, a church family that has already said, 
um, we want to get to a $10,000 goal to really be able to help this family out tremendously. And so uh, this family is committed to give up to $5,000 um, if the, the rest of the church will give the other $5,000. And so please just prayerfully consider how in addition to the way we all regularly support the ministry of the church and what God is doing here with our finances, uh, prayerfully consider that special need as well. And then turn with me to John chapter 14. Um, we're going to go back in time for a couple minutes here. Um, not well, well, obviously, we're going back in time about 2,000 years to the upper room. But first, I want to take you to 1717. In the year 1717, it was February, in a small town uh, called Octorarder, Scotland. Never been there? You can look it up. Octorarder, Scotland is known in our lifetime because one time it hosted the G8 Summit and one time it hosted the Ryder Cup. That's Octorarder's claim to fame within our generation. But in 1717, it was the birthplace of a very, very consequential, significant, heated, and divisive controversy in the history of the church. And it all started with a young man who was training to become a minister, and he was brought up before other ministers in his denomination, and he was being questioned to receive his licensing and his approval to serve as a gospel minister. And in the midst of that questioning, he was asked to uh, either agree or disagree with a particular statement. And by all accounts, the statement was, was very poorly worded. Um, and even those that supported the statement later said, well, yeah, that was kind of confusing the way we worded that. But the primary question was, is a Christian to forsake sin in order to come to Christ for salvation? Now think about that just for a second. How does our salvation work? Do we come to Christ first and then gradually over time forsake sin? Or must we forsake sin altogether before we enter into relationship with Christ? Well, some of that depends on your definition of terms. What does forsake mean? As we come to Christ, we must confess our sins. We must re repent of our sins. But does that mean that we are no longer sinners before we can come to Christ in salvation? That became this huge point of of division and discussion as different parties were interpreting words different ways and trying to figure out exactly what was meant by this statement, exactly what was meant by this young man's response to it. And over the course of the next decade, a debate raged within the Church of Scotland. A particular book became a, the center of attention. It was a book by a lay minister actually called The Marrow of Modern Divinity. And what really came, where the battle lines were drawn in what is historically known as the Marrow Controversy, and you can look it up. But the lines were drawn under this idea of legalism and antinomianism. And maybe perhaps you know what legalism means. It's this adherence to the law, dependence upon the law to a degree that is, that is not right for the Christian. A legalist is one who believes there is a law and rule for everything and we must as Christians live this a certain way. And the, the law provides comfort and provides stability. And so it's easy sometimes for churches to preach against legalism and say, no, no, we are free in Christ. Christ has freed us from the, from the penalty of sin. Christ has freed us and become our righteousness. That is the gospel. But there's also this other corresponding error called antinomianism. And it's a really long, complicated word, but all it means is anti-law. Nomos meaning law. So you have the legalist and the anti-legalist. And the reality of it is, um, both errors are wrong. 
But both errors are similar in that they have a common birthplace. In fact, uh, one author would call them non-identical twins from the same womb. Because here's what happens in legalism. Your view of God is so distorted that you come into this realization that the only way to please God, even with the blood of Christ, is to do the right thing every time. And that even with the blood of Christ, post receiving the the blood of Christ, you must then do certain things in order to continually earn his grace, earn his love, his affection. That's what a legalist believes. An antinomian says, well, you're free in Christ. So all you got to do is receive the blood of Christ and then just do whatever you want because the penalty is paid and there's, there's no more standards from there. And both at their heart are a misunderstanding of who God is. God is not constantly looking to to punish and beat down those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That is a wrong view of God to say that we must please him by our adherence to the law. But it's also a wrong view of God to say God no longer cares or is concerned about our actions. It is also a wrong view of God to say that because we have been saved by the blood of Christ, we can just do whatever we want. No, this is still a God that is holy, that is righteous, that has designed us according to his image to live in the righteousness that Christ has purchased for us at the cross. And so obedience is a good thing. Legalism, bad. Obedience, good. And the balance of that was raging in Scotland 300 years ago and is still a balance that the church struggles with today. It was raging in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago as the Pharisees were interacting with Jesus and trying to trap Jesus in certain questions. And that battle is still raging today. But in John 14, Jesus answers some of our questions. And Jesus is talking about obedience. What does obedience to Jesus look like? Jesus, the one who loves us unconditionally and in his grace makes a way for us to be saved. Not because of what we do, but because of the free grace that he gives us. It's beautiful. That's the gospel. But he still longs for us to obey him. So that's where we're going today. We're going to trudge into that difficult balance of of how we obey Jesus and live in the freedom of the grace that he has provided for us. We all, in our hearts, default towards error in one of those two ways. And sometimes we all default to both. I kind of default to both. You know, in some areas I'm a legalist, and in some areas I'm an antinomian. And the more I know my own heart, the more I recognize that. And, and just forgetting the gospel and forgetting grace for a second, think about the rules of life. There are certain rules of life that are very important to you that you want everyone to adhere by. But then there are other rules that you're like, eh. And so think about it. We were playing a game with my family at my father's or my grandfather's funeral last week. And I was like, that rule doesn't really matter. Let's not be a legalist. And I'm, I'm literally throwing that out about a board game because it's not important to me. There are legalists in my family about board games, but that's not something that matters to me. But within my family, I tend to be a legalist on what is right in the way you treat people, the way you speak to people. And there are other people like, yeah, you should say whatever you want and they'll just forgive you. And I'm like, no, 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 you should treat people a certain way. That's my legalism. My legalism is kindness and grace towards people. But maybe your legalism is traffic laws or most likely your antinomianism is traffic laws where you recognize, yeah, I mean, those exist for a reason, but I mean, they're they're more suggestions, right? 
but there are certain laws that all of us think are very, very important. And, and we're all conditional legalists and conditional antinomians. And when it comes to receiving the grace of Christ and, and learning what it means to follow Christ, this is an essential question. This is the heart of the gospel that was being debated in Scotland 300 years ago and is still something that we all have to struggle through finding the right balance of ourselves. So today, our focus is on what we do in response to Jesus. But I'm going to tell you, that's incredibly dangerous to take as a focus because that's a legalistic approach to preaching in and of itself. But see, that's what we all like. Everybody wants that. And and so many times I hear, give me something practical to do in the aftermath of your sermon. And I'm always, always hesitant to just tell people, this is what you should do. This is what the Bible says you should do. Because that's a great way to preach law and not grace. Because the message that we've received from Jesus is not so much about what you should do, but what you should receive out of what is given to you. And we don't want to preach a message that's always telling people week after week, if you want to be loved by God, if you want to be a good Christian, if you want to be a good church member, you must do this, this, and this. No, we have to to nuance it a little differently to say we do want to live in obedience to Christ. But what we do flows out of what we believe and what we experience of who God is. So yeah, today we're going to get to some practical what we should do as followers of Jesus. But first, we're gonna start with what we should believe. We're even, and and this is uncomfortable for me, we're even gonna talk about what we should feel. Yeah, we're gonna get emotional today. But what we should believe, what we should feel, what we should do, that's our our framework for this morning. John 14, I'm gonna read um, straight through verses 15 through 31, and then we'll unpack it together. Uh, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. One of the simplest statements and commands in scripture. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while... And the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him, and and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with, with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives peace do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced 
because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as my Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So what do we believe? What do we feel? What do we do? Out of this passage, I I see several things that we need to believe before we move into the do stage. That, That all of our action is out of what we believe and who we become. And so our action in this passage is first preceded by the promises of God that he makes to us that we must believe and understand exactly what God is saying to us about what his offer of love, salvation, and grace to us entails. He says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Jesus does not leave those who are his. God does not leave those who are his. God does not give up on us. God does not give up on you. No matter how many times you reject him, the offer of grace and love from the Father still stands. Number two, because Jesus lives, we can live. This is what he says in verse 19. I live so you can live. And the only path, literally the only path to the good life is Jesus. And there's all sorts of offers out there in society. Society offers all sorts of paths to really getting to the good life. That's what marketing is all about. How to make your life better, how to make your life more meaningful, how to give you greater and deeper pleasure in life. And so everybody out there wants a better life. Everybody out there wants more joy, wants more rest, wants more hope, more of whatever, more pleasure. And Jesus says, no, no, no. If you want life, you have to receive it in me. Jesus is in the Father, and we are in Jesus. That's verse 20. Another point that we know, and we have to know this is true out of this passage, or we're going to totally derail on the what we should do in light of it. That Jesus and the Father are one. And the oneness of Jesus, the Father, and Holy Spirit creates a new oneness for us. That we can be united with Jesus because Jesus is united with the Father. Because it was the Father who we rebelled against. It was the Father who we sinned against. But if we are going to be one with the Father again, then we, as he created us to be before we sinned, then that problem of our sin has to be dealt with so that we can be made new and righteous in him. And now we are one in Jesus. Jesus and God, who are one, then send a third person. So we we see in Point three up there, verse 20, Jesus is in the Father and we are in Jesus, so the two are united. But then there's a third person that shows up in, in verse 16, Jesus and God together send us the helper. And we know from verse 26 that the helper is the Holy Spirit who will teach those who receive him. And so the Spirit has been offered to all of those who have believed in Jesus. Do you believe that? And when I ask, do you believe that, what I mean is, do you believe that the Spirit has been sent to you and has not been taken away from you? And, And in saying that, what I'm actually asking is, do you believe that the Spirit actually indwells you now, this moment, this day? That, that actually the person sitting next to you, you, who you can reach out and touch, go to touch the person next to you on your shoulder, 
If you've never met them before, introduce yourself before you touch them. And recognize that that physical touch of the person sitting next to you, that the Spirit of God is just as real in your life, present with you. If you are in Christ, that the Spirit of God is just as real as that physical presence sitting next to you. Do you believe that? I think it's something that we always say. I mean, if I asked you individually, nobody would say, no, I don't believe that. But do you live an experiential belief of that? Do you live as if that's true every single day? That's, that's a harder question. That when you're having a hard day, when it seems like life is against you, when it seems like things in your marriage are not where you want them to be, when your kids are driving you crazy, when your boss is driving you crazy, when that guy in the other car is driving you crazy, in all those moments that the Spirit of God is actually with you in those Number six in my list here, Jesus leaves us peace that is better than the world's peace. This is what we talked about two weeks ago, that the overall theme of of chapter 14 that he repeats multiple times is peace. Uh, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Do not fear, but live in peace. And in verse 27, he gives us a very important distinction of the kind of peace he is talking about and he's not talking about. Jesus doesn't offer empty peace. He's not talking about a peaceful, easy feeling. He's not talking about just, just ignore the hard, just pretend that all the bad stuff isn't happening and just get over it and, and, and pursue this peaceful, easy feeling. No, no, no. Jesus is talking about the peace with God that is only achieved by the payment for sin. That, that we are, that, that now we can affirm Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that we can only affirm that because we are in Christ Jesus. And, and, and the, the antithesis of that is still true. Those who are not in Christ Jesus, there is condemnation for. And so we don't want the peaceful, easy feeling that the world can offer of just ignore the harsh stuff in the world, just turn off the news, turn off all of the bad events in the world, and just live in pleasure, whatever pleasure you can find. No, no, no. Jesus has to offer us more than that because we are in greater need than that. We need to be made at one, made at peace with a God whom we have offended in our rebellion and in our sin. We needed a debt to be paid, and he paid it for us. And that's the peace we get here. So so this is what we have to believe first. What do we know? What do we believe out of this passage? Those six things are scattered all throughout those passages of, or those verses of 15 through 31 of John chapter 14. Now, how do we feel? Let's get all emotional now. How do we feel in light of what God's word is saying to us? Uh, Three times, emotions are brought up here very clearly and actually it's more than three times these are just the three clearest verses this whole passage is about this concept of love of how you feel about God how you live in response to the God who created you created all that you see set the world into motion designed the world to work a certain way and has has set a divine standard of righteousness which we have all failed to live up to so now post-cross of Christ, post the offer of redemption in Jesus. How do, we, how do we feel about him? How do we live in emotional response to the God who is? If you love me, keep my commandments, verse 15. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, verse 21. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, verse 23. Do you think that maybe in this passage Jesus wants us to love God? 
that maybe this is one of the driving forces of what this whole discourse is about for Jesus. As he's sitting there in the upper room, as they're wrapping up the, the Passover supper, in fact, at, at this point, he gets up and, and leaves, and, and they, they leave the room after this, but then in, verse, in chapter 15, he, he keeps talking that same evening. But they're about to leave the upper room at the end of, of chapter 14 here. But in this last message to the disciples spread throughout the evening, he is saying, you know, guys, you know what's really important? That you do not fear and that you pursue the peace that I offer and not the, the world offers and that you love God and keep his commandments. And it really is this incredibly simple, easy to apply section in which Jesus, as he often does, is basically saying the same thing differently over and over and over again, right? I mean, 21, or, or those verses there, actually, there's a, there's a misprint there. Number one on that is actually verse 15. But verse 15, verse 21, and verse 23, they all say the same thing. Basically, just in different orders, a little bit different words, but love me, keep my commandments. That's, that's what this is all about. And so then we have to ask the question, what does it mean to love God? You, you know, this is one of those things that often gets said, well, men and women have different experiences with this. I've heard it said to people before that, that women tend to get the concept of, of loving God more, more readily than men do. I, I don't think it's as simple as that. I don't think it's as simple as male-female differences. I think it's way more complex, and there's a whole lot of differences within each one of us. Our personalities, our experiences, our, our past, the relationships that we've had, the, the love that we have experienced from humans, all of that shades and factors into the way we are able to love or not love God. The way we are able to experience the love of God and live in loving relationship with him or the extent to which we struggle with that. Because sometimes, for some of us, based on the life that we've lived, that can be hard to experience. Um, there's lots of great resources out there about the way people love differently. You think of the, the five love languages and you think, well, it's good for husbands and wives to know that sometimes you speak different languages in love. And hopefully you know, like, if you're an acts of service person or a, a um, gifts person or a, a physical touch person or words of affirmation person, those, that's, really, that's a really helpful resource to figure out and to say, both within a marriage relationship but also within a parent-child relationship, everybody gives and receives love differently. Is it possible that, that we have different experiences of the love of God based on how he has created us and that God is actually big enough to deal with that, that God is actually big enough to know each of our personalities and relate to us in loving relationships. So we know that we all have different experiences of what it means, and so it's really hard to tell you this is what loving God should look like, because you know what? You're going to have different experiences, uh, go through different trials, go through different challenges, and go through different blessings, go through different miracles, go through different times of, of great personal devotion in prayer or in scripture, go through different services where you just really feel God moving and working, we're all going to have a little bit of a different experience in our personal relationship with God. And guess what? That's okay. Your relationship with God and le learning to love God and live in loving relationship with God the Father doesn't have to look exactly like anyone else's. You can learn from somebody else, but you're not going to have the exact same level of emotional connection, loving relationship. It's not going to look exactly the same for you as it does for your spouse or as it did for your parent or as it did for the sweet older lady at the church that you, everybody just knows love God, loves God deeply. 
You, you don't have to, to do it exactly the way I do. In fact, I, I kind of hope you don't. I kind of hope you listen to what I say, and, and there, there's a little bit of following my example, but I really want you to follow the word more than me. But, it, but in the midst of that, everybody's different, and, it, and it's okay to have a little bit of a different relationship with God, and we know people are different. We know personalities are different. But at some point, as we pursue our relationship with God, we all have to deal with this fact that we are called to live in a loving response to the God who has loved us abundantly. The God who has loved us beyond what we could ask, think, or imagine. Who has made his enemies his children. He literally adopted his enemies into his family and called them sons and daughters. Called us sons and daughters. So what do we do with that? How do we respond to that? That, that incredible outpouring of love. We deal with the obstacles, we deal with the challenges, and we keep charging in to remind ourselves, this is why I tell you uh, occasionally, you preach the gospel to yourself. You know, it's important to go out into the community, to share with the lost, to preach the gospel to those that have not heard the gospel or those who have not understood the gospel or those that do not know Jesus. Let's preach the gospel outside our four walls into the community. Let's do that. You know who else you need to preach the gospel to? Yourself. Because you're going to forget. Like, no, I don't, I don't forget. I mean, I, I know what the gospel is all about. No, no, no. You emotionally forget what you mentally know. And we all do it. And we all do it semi-regularly, right? We, we all will, will bend towards, at times, thinking, well, this is happening in my life because God must be mad at me and God must be punishing me for something. That's a legalistic heart. Or maybe we default into something of being like, well, I know this is wrong, I know this is sinful, but it's fine, God was just going to forgive me. That's an antinomian heart. We've got to present the gospel, remind ourselves of the gospel regularly so that we recognize that our view of God is not distorted. So that we remind ourselves of who this loving Father really is and what he has really done for us, poured out for us at the cross. And at some point, and this is the hard one, at some point, as we pursue our loving relationship with God, we have to deal with our parents. And I don't mean like literally deal with your parents. I mean like literally deal with the face of your human father that you have put onto the face of God. Because we all learn authority from our parents. We all learn what, what parenting looks like from our parents. And I don't care how good your father was. I hope you had a great father. But whether your father was good or bad or somewhere in between, as most are, you cannot put God into the box of what your father presented to you. He's so much bigger than that. And so many of us struggle in our loving relationships with God because when we think of this authoritarian father in heaven, we think of the way dad was. And if dad was very strict, we think God is very strict. And if, God, and if dad was really passive and let things go, we think God may be passive and let things go because that's how dad loved and so maybe that's how God loves too. And so listen, love your fathers, honor your fathers well. And I pray that every father in this room would pursue representing God well in that relationship with your own children, grandchildren, etc. But recognize that in your relationship with God, you've got to say, my dad was great, but God, is, God loves me differently. God loves me bigger. God loves me beyond what my human father ever could have possibly demonstrated to me. Or, 
my, my dad wasn't great. And I'm so grateful that he's not my real dad, that he's not my ultimate father, that I have a heavenly father, I have an eternal father, and that was the dad that I had for a, a number of days, for a, a matter of time in this life, but I have a heavenly father that far exceeds anything that my earthly father offered to me in love and acceptance. So yeah, we, we've got to fall deeper in love with God. So how do we do that? Well, actually, the answer to questions two and three is exactly the same verses. I, I first started, what do we believe? What do we know? And then I was like, well, what do we feel? We, we should be feeling love towards God because of what Christ has poured out for us, what God has done for us before the fullness of time, or before the beginning of time. And now, what do we do? It's the same answer as what do we feel? The same three verses. Verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. What do you feel? You love. What do you do? You keep commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. What do you feel? Love. What do you do? You keep commandments and keep his word. In verse 23, again, the same. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Uh, Notice, I said each of these three verses basically say the same thing, but the implications are actually a little different in a really cool way. As you keep going in verse 15, the the conditional statement, the the if-then, is saying, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments, and then there's a result that happens of your love for God. The result that happens after verse 15 is that the Father will send a helper. If you love God, he will send a helper. In verse 21, we see if you love me, then you keep my commandments, but then there's another result. Then if you love me, if you keep my commandments, in verse 22, then you will be loved by my Father, and you will be one with the Father, and I, Jesus, will manifest myself to you. So in verse 15, love of God results in obedience to God, results in the sending of a helper. Verse 21 and 22, love of God results in obedience to God, results in deeper loving relationship with God, results in Jesus demonstrating himself and oneness with the Father. Verse 23, love of God results in obedience to God, results in the deep Father's love, results in we will come. It's so interesting. I told you last week that we we improperly present the Trinity when we overly separate them. Jesus, when you start to pin down his language in this, it gets confusing unless you see the oneness of God. Because in verse 15, the result is, if you love me, the Holy Spirit comes. In verse 21, if you love me, Jesus comes. In verse uh, verse 23, if you love me, Jesus and the Father comes. How can that all be true? Because they're all one. If you love me, Holy Spirit comes. If you love me, Jesus comes. If you love me, Father comes. If you love me, you will be in loving relationship with all three persons of the Trinity. And as the Spirit indwells, as we talked about earlier, it's not just the the Spirit as if God is still separate from you and Jesus is still separate from you. The Spirit is God and God is with you. God the Father, God the Son, in the Holy Spirit, are with you, are with us, are in us. And that's beautiful. But see, here's here's the thing that we can mess up here. The the if-then can get really confusing. Because then you're like, okay, I want the Holy Spirit, right? That's the result. I want the Holy Spirit. What do I need to do to get the Holy Spirit? Well, I need to keep commandments. Because if I don't keep commandments, then 
then God says, I'm not loving him properly if I don't keep commandments. So then you fall back into that, tr- into that hole of legalism because you're like, I want the Holy Spirit, so I've got to prove my love for God so that God will love me, so I've got to keep my commandments or keep God's commandments in order to prove my love for God. That's the pit of legalism that is so easy to fall into. And so we treat the Christian life as if it's this, this series of levels that we have to complete. This is the video game analogy of the Christian life. As if the Holy Spirit is something to unlock as you grow in maturity. You pass one level of Christian maturity and you get a little bit more of the Holy Spirit. You pass another level of, of Christian maturity and then you unlock the fullness of the Holy Spirit. No, 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 that, that's not actually how it works. It's that Jesus went to the cross on your behalf to pay the penalty for your sin. And it is not your righteousness that makes you right with God. Because if it was your righteousness that would make you right with God, it doesn't matter how mature you were, you're just not gonna get there. And so the new believer is at peace with God because of the righteousness of Jesus. The new believer that's done nothing but mess up until the day he received Jesus. He is righteous before the throne of God, not because of all of his mess ups but because of Jesus' righteousness and Jesus' free gift. And the old believer that's been walking with Christ for 70 years, the the 90-year-old lady that you just don't believe has sinned for 30 years, she is righteous before God, not because of her 70 years of walking with Christ, but because of what Christ achieved at the cross. And and neither is more righteous than the other. And so so the the Holy Spirit is not some... some, some, uh, reward that we unlock in the, pres- in the progress of the Christian life. It is the presence of God that is given to us when we are declared righteous. And we are declared righteous only by the shed blood of Jesus at the cross. Now, we may not be experiencing the Holy Spirit in all of its fullness, but, but that's not a, a problem of Jesus holding back some of the Holy Spirit. It's a problem of us not yielding ourselves through the fullness of the Spirit that is there with us. Our experience of the Holy Spirit is tied to our maturity because it's tied to our recognition of, of seeing him and listening to him and feeling him in our lives. Uh, going back to, to Scotland and this whole Octorarder um, debate and the whole marrow controversy, I, I told you there that the problem is actually on how you view God. The problem is not legalism. The problem is not antinomianism. They're both errors, but they're errors from the same root. And that is a misunderstanding of who God is. And the truth of this passage is that if you fall in love with who God really is, you won't have to try hard to keep commandments. He doesn't say, if you love me, then work really hard to keep my commandments. He doesn't say, if you love me, then you must keep my commandments. He just says, if, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's actually the language that is being presented here, that you will naturally demonstrate your love for me by the keeping of my commandments. And so I know that the per, verse 15 in particular is is sort of worded as a command, but verse 23 actually gives the greater sense of the original language and what Jesus is, community, is communicating. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Not he must, it's just, you don't have a choice. 
If you're falling deeply in love with Jesus, with the God who is, then that obedience is going to flow naturally. But, but the point of this, the application of what we must do here, is we've got to know what he expects of us. We've got to know what it means to live in obedience, what it means to live in holy and righteous living in light of the God who loves us so deeply. So what do we do, or what do we feel we love? What do we do? We love and obey. And what is the most important part of the obedience that we need to know? How do we know how to obey God? How do we know what's most important to obey out of all that God has said, all that God has revealed? It's almost like asking, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And you know the answer, right? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God, Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. You shall love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There's a lot of commands of God throughout the Old and New Testament. There's a lot of things to do. We should study. We should we should. Um, we should understand, we should seek to live in light of all that God has commanded us, but the starting point is incredibly simple. If you love me, you will keep my commands. What's my greatest command? Love me. The, the Christian life is complex and simple at the same time. All, all of the complexity of what Christ did in the cross and what it means to be indwelt by the Spirit and what it means to be an eternally adopted son of God or daughter of God, all of that is very, very complex. What do you do? It's pretty simple. You recognize him for who he is. You love him in response to what he has done. And you just follow him day by day by day. See, legalism will tell you that in order to be accepted by God, you must do something. I do this, therefore I am accepted. But the gospel of Jesus flips the story to say, I'm accepted, therefore I'll do this. Legalism... I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Not out of obligation, not out of duty, not out of drudgery, out of a loving relationship with a God who has shed his blood for you and has poured out his life to you. What else does Jesus say about central commandments? Actually, right before John 14. So we know, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Matthew 22 tells us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a starting point for following Jesus in obedience. Love God, love your neighbor. What else does Jesus say about central commandments? Well, right before, right in the midst of the same message, just a few verses up, uh, John 13, 34, and 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another, what's the greatest demonstration to the world that we are following Jesus? Our love for each other. Our love for those within the church is a demonstration to the world of our love for Jesus and our oneness with God. It's weird to the world. And that's what the early church experienced. The early church experienced this, this sense of the world thought they were so strange who takes care of widows and orphans like that? That's a really weird group of people, those Christians. 
But then you know the incredible thing about the earliest Christians is they took such good care of their own widows and orphans, then the Romans got really uncomfortable because they started taking care of non-Christian widows and orphans. Like, who does that? They're not just taking care of their own widows and orphans, they're taking care of our widows and orphans. It was just strange. Why? Because they were actually living out what Jesus said. Living in great love and affection for each other, serving one another, serving the least of these, and the world took notice. What else does Jesus command in this same message? Again, they, they get up, they move from, from um, the upper room at the end of John 14, they move to the Mount of Olives in John 15, and in John 15, his command, the command, what must I do, Jesus? Tell me what to do, Jesus. We want that, right? We want Jesus to make it clear. What do we do? What's his command in John 15? Abide in me. John 15, four, abide in me and I in you. And then down to verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. This is my commandment, verse 12, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, John 15, 13. Jesus likes to say the same thing over and over again in different ways. And this night, he is continuing to circle this idea, live in loving relationship to God, in loving relationship to me, Jesus, live in the presence of the Spirit, and as an outpouring of God's love for you, and love one another. Love one another, your brothers and sisters in the church. Love your neighbors, those outside the church. And by this, everyone will know. And so all of this, we have to make clear that the gospel is the essential precursor to this loving relationship with God. God has already done his part in demonstrating his love for us. He poured out his love on the cross by pouring out the blood of Jesus. He sealed the promise of redemption by raising Jesus from the dead. And the offer stands for us, for any of us. Anyone can get in on this. It's incredibly simple. That I can't do it on my own. That Jesus was righteous for me. That all I have to do is receive his gift. And that I live in loving relationship with him. It's incredibly simple. I said a couple weeks ago, the, the saying, God helps those that help themselves, isn't true. God helps those who get sick of themselves. God helps those who are sick of trying to make it on their own, of trying to achieve on their own. God helps the broken, God helps the desperate, and he does it by pouring out the blood of Christ. So then, all of us have a next step to take today. And that next step can go in lots of different directions, but it's all about how we love. What is your next step in deeper loving relationship with God? Do you know him? Do you relate to him every day? Do you start your day? Do you end your day in loving relationship with God through his word or through prayer? I'd encourage you to, to think through how you can do that more. If you think I'm not in the right place, I don't feel the love for God in the way that it sounds like I should from this sermon, then pursue him in the word. Pursue him in prayer and just see what he does. See how he shows up. See how you fall deeper in love with him. Or maybe Maybe the next step of love is to love him more deeply through community, to come closer to other brothers and sisters, to come closer to others who love God and who believe in God and to grow in that together. Or maybe your new experience of love needs to be with those that are outside the church, to love those that are not like you well, to, to love those that are your neighbors. How do you love them well? How do you serve them? How do you show them the love of Christ? 
So all of us have a Holy Spirit-empowered next step, and we're all going to leave here believing that Jesus is telling us the truth and the Spirit really is with us. So I'm just going to encourage you, let the Spirit speak to you right now. Uh, Jason and the team, they're going to come forward. We're going to end our service in a way that we, uh, we like to do this about once a month. And this is called the Lord's Supper. And you know, what's interesting is in John 14, they've just finished the first one of these. The first one of these in one sense, but also it had been done a few thousand times before that. Because see, what was happening in John 14 is they were celebrating the Passover meal, this ancient celebration in Israel where they remembered God's redemption of bringing Israel out of Egypt releasing them from slavery. But for the very first time in John 12, 13, 14, it is revealed to Jesus' followers that the Passover meal that they have been celebrating for generations is not just about Egypt. It's actually about Jesus. And so today we get to celebrate this incredible meal that's all about Jesus. So as they lead us in song, they're gonna sing. You can stand and sing. You can sit and reflect. You can come to the altar and pray. But I want you to to consider, to prayerfully consider the broken body of Christ that you're about to receive, the shed blood of Christ that you're about to receive. And if you have confusion about what any of that means, while this song is playing, come up and see me. I'll say this is a meal for believers in Jesus. So if you're not a believer, let's figure it out before we receive this meal. Or if you're with a young child that that doesn't understand, I I would actually encourage you to withhold this meal from your young child if they're not in full understanding of the gospel yet. Because that's a good context for conversation about it. This is a meal for the body of Jesus to participate in what we've already received. Remind ourselves of what we've already received. So prayerfully consider your next step as we sing together and then I'll come back up after the song and we'll receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus together. How great the chasm that lay between us How high the mountain I could not climb In desperation I turned to heaven spoke your name into the night and through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul the work is finished the end is written Jesus Christ, my living Lord. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory. To wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross is spoken, I am forgiven. The King of Kings calls me his own. 
faithful Savior, I'm yours forever, Jesus Christ, my living Lord. And hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Grip on me, you have broken every chain. 
there's salvation in your name jesus christ my living hope jesus christ my living hope jesus christ my would be seated and take the cup there's a thin layer of plastic on the top and if you remove it it releases the wafer the the bread the broken body of Christ is what this represents for us and every time we take it in remembrance of him we remember that we are really and truly partakers of the broken body of Christ that his body was bruised broken splintered for us And we do this in remembrance of him. And now you can remove the next layer of plastic for the cup. Scripture says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Scripture says life is in the blood. And so when we gather here as we do today, to receive this cup, we are receiving anew. We're reminding our minds by reminding our physical bodies of what it means to receive the shed blood of Jesus. So as we do this, we're again participating in a covenant that has been achieved for us. And we are declaring, as Christ has declared, that we are righteous before the throne of the Holy God. Do this in remembrance of him. Amen. And now I'll remind you that um, anytime we receive the Lord's Supper in communion, what we would previously do before we started doing communion this way is we would take up an offering for needs in our community that we would call our Samaritan offering. I'd still encourage you to give to that offering today, although we will not pass the plates and take up that offering. I just want to remind you, as you give towards the general needs of the church and as you give towards um, special funds like the one I mentioned today, the Samaritan ministry is an important ministry that goes not inside our church at all, but all outside into our community to help those in needs. It's a vital gospel ministry for us. And as we receive the Lord's Supper, I remind you to give back of the freeness of what he has given to us. And now as we close this morning service, I'm going to ask you to stand again. And I'm going to read to you the blessing of the Lord from Numbers chapter 6, which was proclaimed by the high priest once the sacrifice was completed in the temple. The sacrifice that had to be done multiple times a year for everyone constantly, consistently redoing the sacrifice, reshedding blood for the sake of a partial atonement for sin. But now we can do this every Sunday because we know the sacrifice has been paid once and for all at the cross. So here's the Lord's blessing over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace. Good to know.